Okay, now here we go. All right, Matthew chapter 3. Yeah, I'm just going to tell you, we're going to do the first 12 verses. And there's a lot. Like, there is a whole lot in those 12 verses. And it's all good. But what we're going to do today is take those 12 verses, and like we did last week where there was also a whole lot, we're going to try and make sure we're getting the whole, like the big scope of what's going on in the passage. Um, because we can, we can most definitely, very intentionally, and with good, in, you know, so with good intent, um, and very honorably go down every single verse and follow that rabbit trail and, and really like understand every single verse. And I think that that's, that, that would be a valid approach. This today, though, is really looking at what's really going on in the big scope of this. Because, again, I don't know about you, but I just, I, whenever I was in seventh grade and I got saved, all I knew is you're supposed to read your Bible and where do you start? Matthew. And so one of the first things you get is this and then you just get used to it to where maybe it doesn't really quite all make sense because it's weird there's a guy in the desert clothed in camel hair who eats locusts and honey and everybody's flocking to him and it's weird okay so i want us to like figure out what all's going on and why this matters okay so that's kind of the 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 scope for today and then all the other verses that i don't answer then you can have lunch with one another. We can go have coffee sometime. You can send messages. Um, the men are probably going to push in some more to it this week, but, but there's a lot here, and we will absolutely not cover it all, is what I'm telling you. But God's Word says this in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who... For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John, John the Baptist, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to, to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, y'all hear this, every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He goes on, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And that's where we're going to stop. Because in verse 13, Jesus steps onto the scene. But this is still in the introductory work of what's happening in Matthew. And I am so familiar with it. I thought Andy did an incredibly great job a couple of weeks ago whenever he said, you know, like I go out for a walk on a fall evening and then I remember the, I hear the crunch of the leaves and I start to remember, oh, this is so simple and I, this is what I love. I, I love fall because I can, you can smell fall in the air. You can walk in the evening. You can feel the breeze. You can hear the leaves. You can all these things. And he says, so simple and so refreshing. 
But we get so comfortable with what we find in the Bible. And the truth is, maybe we haven't thought fully about it. And maybe you have. My role is to make sure that we've thought about these scriptures and understand what's actually going on. So I've already told you there is much to do in this passage. I'm hoping that we can honor the scope of the text, the big picture, and really it's what in the world is going on here. Like, that's the big picture. It's like, what in the world? Like, who, who is this John the Baptist? What a weird last name. And where are they? And why is his message so important? Like, if we don't know those things, then I think we're going to miss it. We can miss a whole lot of other things because we're going to catch it throughout Matthew. But if we miss these things, then I think we're missing something really, really wonderful. Okay, so first off, when and where is this? Just very simple. It tells us that in those days, so in the past, and this, by the way, is just a phrase that means like in the past. Like, was it in the days, like in chapter 2, um, they'd gone to Nazareth. He was going to be a Nazarene, right? Um, so they were there, and we had seen the, the trek from Egypt. And here, like, But in those days, like in the past, there was this guy named John the Baptist, and he came preaching in the wilderness. And the wilderness there is not the wilderness of a forest. It's the wilderness of the desert. So if you can imagine an arid, dry land, and history tells us that this is about 29 to 27 A.D., right around in that range. So I'm trying to give my, my story in some context. That's when all of this is happening. There is a gap that we're going to see next week between chapter 2 and chapter 3. There's about a 30-year gap that's happened because we left the baby boy Jesus, and whenever he shows up in verse 13, then he is the man Jesus, and he is um, going to start his ministry. Okay, so now I want to talk about, I just want you to know when and where we are, okay? Then you get John the Baptist. Who is, like, who is this guy? Like this, if you ran into this guy at Walmart, like you would take the other aisle, but you would also do the slow walk by of like, who is this? Like, what's he going to do? Like that, this is a weird guy. Like if you just read, I'm sorry, if you just read Matthew chapter 3 and you went and he wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt and a his food was locust and wild honey, and he, that's cool. And then, like, you just kept going, like, then you totally missed it. This guy's crazy. In my translation, he's the wild man, right? He is a wild man. Now, you do need to know, just footnote it real quick, this is not John who wrote the Gospel of John or 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. This is another John. There's about four to five possibly five Johns in the New Testament. This is John the Baptist. And he got his name, the Baptist, because he baptized people to the degree that people said, oh, the Baptist, the guy who baptizes, that John, that John the Baptist, that's how he's got that name, okay? So the Baptist is not his last name, just so you know. But again, young man not knowing, nobody ever told me. Why is he called John the Baptist? Of course he has to baptize people. It's in his name. I never knew that he was a different John also than the John who wrote the Gospel of John, the Apostle John. He's not the same one. This is a different John. Now, this is, this is worth looking at. Verse 4, the wild man. Like, that's my, that's my footnote, the wild man. Okay. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. You, okay, so you're in your Bible and you're Matthew. You've got to flip like two pages back to Malachi because this is where it starts to me to get really cool and it just kind of keeps getting cooler and cooler and cooler. So 
Go to Matthew, I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. So to get to, because this is gonna this is gonna make sense in a second. We were in Matthew chapter 3 right here, and then we did this, and now we're in Malachi 4. It's only like a couple of pages, regardless of the Bible you're in. If you're in a thin line, then it's like one page, possibly. But you go back very little bit, and here's what Malachi says. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4 through 6. Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament. Okay? John, well, I'm not going there yet. Okay, he's the last prophet of the Old Testament that we have recorded right here, because in your next page probably says New Testament. Right? So we get there and it says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Those are God's final words. And then you know what happens? You know what this one page represents? 400 years of silence. The last words that God speaks to Israel through his prophet Malachi is that I will send you Elijah before the great and awesome day and I will turn children to their father and father to their children unless I come destroy them absolutely, utterly. That's the degree that everything had gone to and then there's 400 years of silence. Like let, let that sink in though real quick. You and I are so accustomed to coming here and worshiping God with one another. And we go from here and we can hear God throughout the week and we can read His Word anytime we want and we can pray and know that we're heard and we can commune with God anytime we want. Can you imagine 400 years where we don't get to hear from God at all? And that's what happens at the end of Malachi. 400 years, no word from the Lord, no prophet. And then suddenly, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom is at hand, and everybody flocks to him. But John the Baptist appears after 400 years of silence. And whenever he does, a great revival takes place. That's what the end of Malachi promised. Whenever you and I studied Malachi, and we were right here, and then we finished Malachi, then there was 400 years of silence before we ever have Jesus or we ever hear from God again. So this is a pretty big deal. I want to go a little bit further because y'all, when God speaks and he sends his prophet, like that's amazing, but you got to catch everything else that also happened. And in Matthew 3, 3, it says this, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, which is a reference up by the way, to Isaiah 40 chapter, or I'm sorry, chapter 40, verse three. So guess where we're going right now? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, because that one verse is cool, but you read the whole passage and it's super cool, okay? So in Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to start in verse 3. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, because Matthew says, hey, there was John the Baptist. He came. This is the one that Isaiah was referencing, and then we just kind of go on. And we're like, oh yeah, cool. No, well, like when God speaks, God does. Okay? But there's really, there's a whole lot in this other passage. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it says, A voice cries, I'm sorry, a voice cries. And then it says, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Like that was the reference. So we can check the box. 
But there's so much more, right? Wait, there's more. Okay, look at verse 4 of Isaiah. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. And the uneven ground shall become level, and rough, rough places of plain. And then look at verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So, walk with me here. Yes, there will be a voice crying aloud in the wilderness. That is John the Baptist. Okay, that's the real John the Baptist right there. That's his, the, the real meaning. But then look at this. But also Isaiah 45 says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And this is Jesus. The glory of the Lord is Jesus. We don't only get John the Baptist prophesied in verse 3. We get Jesus in verse 5. Verse 13 like, okay, so I know I'm doing a lot here. Like, it's like a Rubik's Cube. Like, we're working on this side, and then I need to flip over here to, like, work on this side, to come back over here to work on this side. By the way, I can't solve a Rubik's Cube. I just know that that happens. All right, so in Malachi, like, twisting some of the cube together here, in Matthew, it said that according to Isaiah 40, verse 3, that there would be a voice crying in the wilderness. And Matthew says that this is, John the Baptist is that voice. We read more of Isaiah 40, and we get to verse 5, it says, The glory of the Lord will be revealed after Elijah comes, after that voice comes. Or I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say Elijah. But after the voice in the wilderness comes, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. So now we're back in Matthew. So go to Matthew. Don't let go of Malachi, because we're probably going to need again here in a second, knowing how this goes. Look in Matthew. Just telling you. I'm really excited about all this. And it's okay. Because later, it'll all come together. And I hope you're just like... Look at the Lord. Ricky should have communicated that so much better. And that's okay. Okay, but now we've been in Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. Look at verse 13, which will be next week. But then Jesus came from Galilee. So there's the glory of the Lord that appears. Jesus is the glory of the Lord. So if we go all the way back to Isaiah, there will be a voice of one crying in the wilderness, and he will lay the plain straight. He will make it available for everybody. I'll say it here in a moment, but I'm going to go ahead and say it right now. He is preparing the world for Jesus, and he's presenting Jesus to the world. Like, that is John's ministry. He's laying everything flat, and then in Isaiah 40, verse 5, it says, "...and the glory of the Lord will be revealed." And we look at Matthew and we see the voice of one crying in the wilderness and everybody is coming. It's all being laid flat. And then the glory of the Lord comes. Okay, so the glory of the Lord is Jesus. We miss that oh so very much. Listen to Colossians verse 1 or I'm sorry, chapter 1. And you can go there if you want to. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. This is our Jesus. This is the glory of the Lord. He, it says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is our Jesus. Like this is the glory of the Lord. In fact, Hebrew says he is the radiance of the glory of God. 
So there is, according to Hebrews, there's, the, there's God and then there's like the glory of God that goes out. And then Jesus is like the glory of that glory. He's the radiance of that glory that is going out. You and I think, oh, so little of our Jesus and our God. We don't mean to, it just happens. Like he's with us right now. And we're okay with that. So many churches gather and are so unmoved by the Spirit or by the fact that they've been brought in. They quibble and they fight and they divide. They have lack of peace. They don't seek to reconcile. All these things. They don't want to pour into one another. They don't want to show hospitality because they forget that this is our Jesus and that everything in Jesus has been reconciled to God. He has made us His own. So all of that's going on in Matthew, by the way. Like It's just kind of right back there. But y'all, you need to get this. Like, if you miss everything else, he, Jesus, is the glory of the Lord. And John is crying out, he is near. We take for granted because he's already come. We forget that there was 400 years of silence whenever Israel could not hear from their God. I want to go just a little bit further. Now we're going to go back to Malachi again. Rubik's Cube, sorry. Got to flip to the other side. We thought we had it all solved. There's all the, all the blue and the green, and then you turn it over, and the yellow is all mixed up. All right, so I just don't want you to miss this. This is all still about Matthew chapter 3, but Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. I want to make sure we hit the glory of the Lord first. But in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It says he'll turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and destroy the land. Like before his great silence, he said, I will send you Elijah again. Elijah who had already been there. All right, now there's a really, there's a book you probably haven't visited much, but it's called First Kings. And so you're going to keep going to your left and you will find First Kings. If you're afraid of trying to find it and getting lost, then just like listen very intently because it's, it's not a familiar book. Um, most of us burn out of the one-year plan before we get to 1 Kings. But in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5 through 8, like, just like listen to this. The messengers, this is so old, Old Testament, right? Like deep in the Old Testament. The messengers returned to the king and they said to, and he said to them, why have you returned? And they said to him, listen to this. There came a man to meet us and he said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from bed to which you have gone up, but you will surely die. So the, the prophet Elijah tells the king, you're going to, well, I'm sorry, this man in the wilderness tells the king through his messengers, you're going to die. Look at verse seven. The king said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? Verse 8, they answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And the king said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Like, that's how Elijah wears the, 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 the hair, the leather belt. He's a prophet in the wilderness. They go to seek his advice. You go all the way to Matthew chapter 3. You got a man clothed in camel hair with a leather belt. And people are going out to him in the wilderness. Like, this is Elijah. Like if you didn't know the New Testament and you heard the description of being clothed in hair with the belt about his waist in the wilderness, then you would know that that's Elijah because John the Baptist is Elijah. 
He is the Elijah who has come back. So, all that to say before we move on, that God promised he would send Elijah because if he didn't send Elijah to call people to repentance so that they would know that they needed a Savior and that they needed to repent of their sins, God promised Elijah because if he didn't send Elijah, then nobody would know of Jesus in that moment. But I want you to get this, that everything that God promised, as complex as it can be, that everything that God promised absolutely came to pass. And you need to know that because everything that God promises you in the small personal scope and in the large grand scope of how everything in this world will go and how you will be secure for all of eternity in His presence forevermore, all of that is true. Because from beginning to end, everything that God speaks, God does and God always fulfills. It gets complex. To me, the complexity gets really cool because you see how all these pieces are coming together and it gives me hope and confidence for tomorrow because if He worked all those things out, then everything He said that He would do in my life, that He would never leave me, never leave me nor forsake me, that He would cast my sins as far as the east is to the west, that He would remember my sins no more, that neither death nor famine nor anything would ever be able to separate me from the love of Christ who is in me, that the Holy Spirit within me and within you intercedes for us with, with words too deep for understanding. Like all of those things are absolutely true. And I can believe them because everything he said back here comes to pass. That's why I marvel at John the Baptist. One more thing about John the Baptist. Go to Matthew chapter 11. And let's hear what Jesus has to say about John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 7 through 14. It says this, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, John the Baptist. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way for you. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Then watch this. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. You wrap your head around that. From the days of John the Baptist until now to that moment that we'll get to one day in Matthew. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm so sorry. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So in case you thought we were stretching it, we're not. Like Jesus even says, he's Elijah, and there is no one greater in all of the history, he says, than John the Baptist. And then he tells his followers, he says, but anyone who's in the kingdom of heaven, like so as we go to heaven, even the very lowest least rank, which is like what I'm, I'm just hoping I can get that one right. Like if you just get that, then you are esteemed even higher than John the Baptist. It's our Lord speaking. Y'all, what I want you to get from all of that with John the Baptist is that as God promised, a Savior would be born. As God promised, a king would come. As God promised, Elijah would return. And all of this because God is faithful.
And John's ministry was to prepare the world for Jesus and then to present Jesus to the world. That's what we're going to see play out within this week and next week. He's preparing everybody for Jesus. The kingdom is at hand. And then he's going to present Jesus to the world in our passage next week. The Pharisees and Sadducees, look at this. It says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. Y'all, we're going to see these two groups all throughout the Gospels. And they are the religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were the religious leaders. In fact, if they were here today, then a Pharisee or Sadducee would actually be up here in this position. In our modern culture, our pastors are kind of like that closest parallel for us to understand the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were the ones who knew the law. They're the ones who profess the law. You need godly or biblical counseling or scroll counseling. Then they would go and they would take you and they would give you the wisdom of God. Like that was their role. And they hated Jesus. Like there's a, even before he's here, this revolution of the gospel that's coming, they hate it. Like here's what, here's how one commentary, I just love it when somebody compacts it for me. The Pharisees were a very strict party of the Jews. They prided themselves on following the Jewish, Jewish law exactly. And in that 400 years of silence whenever God wasn't speaking, oh, the Pharisees were. They were adding laws. They were clarifying things to their advantage. And so it's they. whenever Jesus is talking about, oh, you, you keep the law for your own sake, he's usually referring to the Pharisaical law, the Pharisees' law that they created, not to his good law, just so you know. So the Pharisees were very strict. The Sadducees were the second main part of the second main party of the Jews, and most of the Jewish priests were Sadducees. And the Sadducees, by the way, rejected the notion that there would ever be a resurrection. There is this life, and then you die. There is judgment, but there would be no resurrection. But these two parties, the Pharisees and Sadducees, we're going to see them all throughout the Gospels. They are not the heroes of the story. They hate Jesus Christ. And they reject him because he had rejected them. What they had made of Christianity was appalling. And what they held to was not God, but their own works. And they were holy because they deemed themselves holy. They didn't approve of him because he did not approve of them. And it's because of the Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus ultimately is crucified. They're the ones who rally the troops. Watch this. They actually didn't like each other. We know from history that the Pharisees and Sadducees did not hang out together. Yet when Jesus is on the scene, they come together because they now have a common enemy in Jesus. In Mark chapter 7, listen to this. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and He says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And He tells them, You... Pharisees, Sadducees, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to him, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. These religious leaders are not the hero of the story. But you need to remember that Nicodemus, he was one who came from them and God did an incredible work. 
But they come to him and they say, hey, we want to be baptized too. Everybody else is being baptized. And John's response to them is, you brood of vipers. Why? Because John knows who they are. He actually knows who they are and he's not buying it. He says he knows and that they only want to be baptized so that they can show others that they're holy enough to be baptized. They're making sure that they check all the boxes. It's all for show with them. Now, cross life. Let's consider here who we may actually be in this scene before we rush past it. We have a very dangerous tendency to believe that we are the David and not the Goliaths, that we're disciples and not the Pharisees or Sadducees, that we're the ones who get it. Like we always tend to make ourselves the hero of the story by default, and it's very, very dangerous. But like just think about in that moment, like where we actually would fit in. Would we actually be confessing our sins and being baptized? Or maybe we're not so different from the Pharisees and Sadducees, if we're honest. The Pharisees and Sadducees prided themselves in, in their heritage and their name, and they were, they were in the temple every single week. They knew what to do, they knew what to say, and yet their heart really was not fully on God, or they would have understood everything that was happening with John. In fact, you and I need to remember that apart from the great mercy and grace of God in our lives, we would still be the Pharisees. We would still be the Sadducees if God did not do something so incredibly gracious in our lives. This is who we were. We're the ones who came and John would have said, you brood of vipers, what are you searching for here? Repent. And by God's grace, he said, I will let you repent. Like I will grant you repentance. But if God had not done our work, we would have been checking the boxes, loving the praise of others, believing that we had somehow proven ourselves for God. So let me be clear in case we've somehow missed it. Because we got to, and every, that's what Matthew's going to do. Matthew's going to remind us that sometimes we've absolutely missed it. We do not earn our way to God. We are saved completely and wholly by His grace and mercy because of His love for us. And it is when we give up our striving and we believe in Jesus Christ as the only Savior for our souls that we are saved by faith, by grace, completely His. That's why we are here today. Because God called us and God gave us this moment. trying to figure out how much I can actually get through today and how much I just need to go, you know what, Lord, let's just wait. And we'll go a little bit further. We have time. We always have time. Okay. So there's John the Baptist, there's the Pharisees, there's the Sadducees, but John's message is important, y'all. Like, you got to know, like, I actually wrote, why is John's message so important? Why does it, what does it even mean? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because I really struggle with that kingdom of heaven for years and years and years. Like, it's at hand. What does that mean? Because we're still sitting here, like, right now. So I want to just, I want to talk about it. But, but John's message has two main elements. One is repent, and the other one is the kingdom of heaven. Like, it all comes down to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why do you repent? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, therefore repent. Like, that's his message. And that, by the way, is going to be the conclusion of our sermon at the very, very end. Like, what do we do with all this? We repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Like that's our only proper response. So if you want to know like, oh, what's the big left hook at the end? It's this one right here. Repent for the kingdom is at heaven or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what is repentance? Because we throw around these fancy words all the time. We live in the Bible Belt. We are in Arkansas. Like we gathered on a Sunday. We know what repentance is. Making sure here. I'm going to give you two sides of it. On a grand scale, like the big, the big R repentance. Y'all, repentance is turning away from sin. It's an about face, a 180 degree from one direction into another. It is turning from a life committed to sins. And it's a turning away from that. So you're turning from that. So if you were to, uh, and I, uh, just an illustration, like if you're going this way and all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, I am in sin and I'm not honoring God. And then you realize that it's because you're going that way. And so then you turn this way, then you've repented. Like that's the idea of that language. It's a 180, absolutely radical life-changing transformation. We don't repent like this. Oh man, I've got some sin. And then like for the moment, and then turn back around and go, that's not actual repentance. Repentance is a radical, life-changing transformation of the entire person mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It changes all of who you are. If I were to be driving home today and I have a flat and so I pull over my truck on the side of the road and I I go and I'm going to change this flat tire and as I'm changing it, the lug nut rolls off and it goes into the interstate and so like I, not even thinking, I just know I need the lug nut, I run out there and I grab the lug nut and I turn around and a semi just hits me. I'm going to be radically changed in that moment and not for the better, right? Something is going to happen whenever a semi is so impactful that it hits you. It's going to radically change you. And God is bigger than a semi. Too many Christians are walking around saying, I've been completely changed by the grace of God. And yet they live like the world or they wear the Christian shirts. Yet they have not been changed. We cannot claim to follow Christ and yet look like the rest of the world. There is nothing biblical about that. So you and I need to know that whenever we repent of our sins, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's calling them to a radical life-changing alteration where they no longer like, it's not that they don't sin because you and I know that we do sin. Like it's still very much within us. We know that. It's not that we don't sin. It's that we hate that sin and we don't want to do that sin. And we're trying to find ways not to commit that sin over and over again. It's a life at war with sin, no longer a life embracing sin. Does that make sense? So to repent is to do an about face and to hate those things which God hates and not love those things which God hates. So that's repentance. It is, it's a, you see the holiness of God, you see the wickedness of your sin, and you know that it does not honor Him to live in that. And so you turn and you live a life dedicated to Him. Repentance is a radical, all-encompassing shift that turns from delighting in sin to dying to sin and living for God. That's the grand scale. That's what you want to be a Christian today. You're saying, what must I do? You believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you repent and you run to him. But you know what I love about the, the, the parable of the prodigal son is that the son is going to the father and the father is already rejoicing and going out to meet him and he's throwing this huge party. Like this idea that God is always angry at us because we repented and we've come back home and now we're gonna have to pay the punishment. Absolutely not biblical because he rejoices. And it says that even like all of heaven rejoices when even one sinner returns to him. We repent. So on the grand scale is that radical, all-encompassing shift, about-face turn to pursue Christ.
on a daily scale, this is what you and I need. And you're going to notice that, that the definition is exactly the same. Repentance is a turning away from sin. It's an about face, a 180 degree from one direction into another. It's a radical, all-encompassing shift. And here's what's different. We should be repenting daily. Y'all, repentance is a good thing. You might be tempted to think, well, like if I tell somebody I repented of sins today, they might think negatively. No, repentance is a good thing. That God would lay something on your heart and show you the wickedness or the error of your ways is Him saying, I love you so much that you got to know that's not okay. And we give you the opportunity to repent of it. Repentance is a good thing. And we should daily be repenting of those sins and weaknesses which we consistently and constantly gravitate towards. If we know we're in sin then the only proper response is to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So we repent on a grand scale. It's that life commitment to Him. But because we're committed to Him, anytime we find that we are doing this, that we are prone to wonder, prone to leave the one I love, anytime we start to do this, or anytime like we're over here and then we realize that we're kind of slipping or drifting because we're starting to look over here now and we're starting to be drawn away, then we repent and we turn right back around because repentance is a good thing. It keeps us tethered to our God who has saved us. It tells him, it shows him on a heart level that we care about honoring him. We're not so proud as to say, we're going to figure it out. We just say, I'm leaving it and we turn. And you're going to have to do it every single day, sometimes every hour, and sometimes minute by minute. And that's okay because repentance is a good thing. It's a gift of God to us. The kingdom of heaven is a part that I didn't, I've wrestled with. I didn't quite know what to do with all of that. And so... Um, whenever I was growing up, because I, and I, I was a young man for years, and nobody ever just explained it to me. So I like to just explain it because, man, it makes so much more sense whenever somebody just tells you what's going on. So just kind of, I would read. It, I'm like, well, what does that even mean? Like, I get that the kingdom of heaven was near. I get Jesus is coming, but but if the kingdom of heaven was near, then why are we living in such brokenness right now? Like, why didn't? It, and then did his kingdom end because he died and? Like, I didn't quite know what to do with all of it. But whenever you understand, like, the meaning of kingdom a little bit better biblically, oh, then it makes a lot more sense. Okay, so here's, and I'm absolutely, I don't care if I, like, make these Arkansan um, versions of the Greek and the Aramaic words, but, the, but I'm going to. So the predominant meaning of kingdom in the Old Testament, like, the, the Hebrew word was malkut, all right? And then the Aramaic was malkuta, and it actually meant this. This is what matters. It means rain. Like kingdom means rain. Like not rain that falls from the sky, R-E-I-G-N, like the rain of something. Okay, so stick with me a little bit further. So that's on the Old Testament. In the New Testament, sometimes the word, which I ain't trying that one right there, but sometimes that word refers to territory. But overall, in the vast majority of the context, like right here, it holds what they call dynamic force, which means that it's about the rain of something. So John is saying the rain is near. The rain that we've all been waiting for, the Messiah, the one, the king who is going to come, like that rain is at hand. 
So that begins to change things for me because I'm thinking of like a kingdom by territory. Like here's the kingdom of the cafeteria. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the sovereignty, the reign, the authority. Like it's on hand. It's about to come. So whenever I read it that way and then I get to that point whenever I'm like, okay, so it's talking about the reign is near. Okay, I can actually hold on to that. But then the term that they say that they translate is near actually means has drawn near. So it's there's a there's an he's what's the best way? There's an imminence coming. Like he says, you need to repent because that eternal reign or that messianic reign that we've all been waiting for, that reign has drawn near. Like it's right here on the cusp. Last night as we were driving in, and we were at a family reunion in Harrison almost all day, and as we're driving in, we see we get close and we see all the clouds are piling up. And we're marveling at the clouds because they're stacked up so high. And, and they're just, they were amazing in that moment. And you look in the distance and you see the rain falling and slashing through the sky. And we're just, you know what we thought? Oh, it's so near. Like it's right there. That's what John's telling them. You need to repent because the rain is coming. Like the rain of the Messiah is coming. You know what it says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20? Because we're like, okay, it's near, it's near. Okay. But in Matthew 12, 28, Jesus clarifies this. He says, the kingdom has come. The reign has come. Like with Jesus, who's going to appear in verse 13, it's here. And he says, if the kingdom is here, if God is absolutely the authority, if everything is as God says it would be, then you better repent. And that's what I would tell you too. If all things being true from what we've seen, there's only one proper response, and that is that we repent. There's one last thing, and I'm going to summarize it because I want it to be very clear. I'm going to give you three points on John's ministry, and then, I'm going to give, then we're going to hit our conclusion. If you have questions after any of that, just, you know, like I said, holler. If you're like, well, why'd you skip over those verses? Then holler, and we'll talk about it. But what I want you to see from beginning to end is this, that... John's ministry was not about himself, it was about Jesus Christ. So should my ministry be. So should your ministry be. And your ministry. And your ministry. And you're, I'm, I'm saying in your ministry, you're like, well, I don't have a ministry. I don't get up in front of people. Oh, don't forget, in Corinthians, we have all been given the ministry of reconciliation, God making His appeal through us. We can either spend our ministry, we can spend our lives making it about us and what we can accumulate and what we can amass in our comfort, or we can make it about Jesus. And John's ministry was never about himself. It was about Jesus Christ. He spent his entire ministry preparing the world for Jesus and presenting Jesus to the world. What greater calling is that, y'all? And if we're not doing it, you know what we should do? Repent. Because repentance is a good thing. Like, I want my ministry to be like John's ministry because it was never about John. It was all about Jesus. What's your ministry all about, y'all? And then I keep going because I don't want us to miss this as we look at John's ministry. Because John gets down there. We're going to talk about baptism next week. Like, you want to know, like, the doctrine of baptism and, like, what does baptism mean? Like, we're going to talk about all that next week. But John refers to his and says, basically, it's, it's just a washing of water for the repentance of sin. But he's going to do it with the Spirit and fire. And that's just John's way of basically saying this, that just as Jesus is greater than He is, Jesus' ministry is greater than He is, and His baptism is greater than He is. He's going to baptize not just like a symbolic washing away of sins, like you got into water and the, the filth washes off, like John was doing something symbolic yet powerful. He says that Jesus' baptism is not just symbolic and a washing away 
like the outward washing, but it's something internal, like it purifies. That's that reference to fire. Fire is a purifying agent. He says that whenever you have Jesus and there's a baptism that is wholehearted, internal, external, and it's going to absolutely be greater than anything that John could ever do himself. You can get into what does it mean for the, uh, to, he says, baptized in spirit and fire. And then if you look at some of the, the original language, then it's like spirit and fire actually go together. Like it's a single baptism. It's not a separate baptism is my understanding as you look at the original language. Okay, and then this last one. John also clarifies you, and I need this too. John also clarifies in his ministry, it's in that last passage, that, the, that a, the greater one who will come, Jesus, is not only the Savior, but He will also judge. Our Savior is the one who will judge. In His salvation, there is judgment. Our sins were judged by Him and in Him on the cross. They've been laid to rest. But we also know that He is coming. And whenever He comes again, He will be the judge. And He is the cornerstone upon which many will fall and many will stand. So all of John's ministry comes down to that. It's all about Jesus and never about John. That the ministry Jesus is going to do is even greater than John. And that in the end, we need to know that the one who saves us is the one who is also coming to judge. So what do we do with all that? I think that the only good and proper question to all of this is simply, what do we do? Quote, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus says, it has come. No, Jesus reigns. He is sovereign. He has completely finished the perfect plan of God to be crushed by God, to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the glory of God in resurrected power. He reigns and we repent. That's what we do with this. And some of you, like you need to repent, you need to do the grand scale repentance of moving from a life of sin to seeing Him as the Savior and a holy God that you want to live for. You need that grand repentance. And some of us, we actually don't need the grand repentance. We need that moment by moment repentance that in the moment of realizing this, that as you sit here today, the Holy One reigns. And the Holy One who saved you is the one that we live for. And if we're not living for Him and our ministry looks anything different than what we've been called to do, then we repent. It may be a repentance of the mind, a repentance of sins, a repentance of addictions, a repentance of speech, a repentance of eyes, like whatever it is that we need to repent of, a repentance of, of direction. Lord, I've been living my life like whatever that repentance is. Can I just tell you, repentance is a good thing. The fact that you repent to God means that you care enough to do it. I love it whenever my kids mess up. Not when they mess up. A little bit further. Because Gavin's like, oh, I'm going to please my dad today. As a father, whenever my kids mess up, it either angers, saddens, or confuses me. I don't, I don't always know why they do what they do. But whenever they get it, and they have sorrow and grief over what they've done, or they at least understand why that was so disappointing to us, and they come back, and they're like, I get it. I'm really sorry. Like I'm looking around the room at parents, and I'm looking around at some of you who aren't parents, but your aunts or your or you you understand the the illustration. There's something in that moment where I'm like, they do care, they do get it. And if I'm a heaven, or if I'm a, an earthly father, and that's how I feel about my kids, whenever they get it, 
and they have sorrow and grief for what they've done enough to that they're, they're going to come back and, and change it, then how much more our holy heavenly Father, whenever we see ourselves as He sees us and we're no longer trying to be stubborn and fight for our own way and we just say, Lord, I am so, so sorry. Help me to walk in newness of life. Then you know what we see in Scripture? Every time Jesus encounters a sinner, He's going to like not dwell on their past. He tells them, go and sin no more. Like from this moment, go and sin no more. So we're going to repent of whatever it is that we need to repent of. And if you're sitting there going, I'm good. Like you guys are going to take some time, but I'm good. Come by me and I will give you some things to repent of from that one moment. But I know that you know what I mean. And so that's why I can joke about it. Absolutely, you probably have more questions, but I I want you to understand what what God was doing, fulfilling everything He promised so that we could sit here today. I want you to understand what John was doing, presenting Jesus to the world. That's what He was all about. And then we're going to see what Jesus does with baptism next week. Let me pray for you. Lord, grant us a heart of repentance so that we can honor You with our lives. Lord, I don't know what else to do with that except to simply trust You to do what You do. You work in hearts and we trust You with that. May we be faithful. Amen.